Can we just bow in prayer for a moment? Let's pray. Our God and our Father, as we turn now to your word, we recognize, O oh God, that we are unable to understand it and to put it into practice unless you minister to us and unless you speak to us through your Holy Spirit. And so we pray, O oh God, now that you would indeed open our hearts, that you would focus our minds, that our hearts would be responsive to you, and that you would grant understanding to us of your word. Lord, enable us to put this word into practice in our lives day by day. And we ask, O oh God, that Christ would be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. A part of the problem I find in sort of parachuting in to do um, one sermon in a series is you, you don't really know what others have said and how they have approached the previous episodes, so to speak. <clears throat> Though I suppose in a book like Samuel, uh, the individual chapters will stand uh, on their own, and maybe this chapter in particular can stand alone. Samuel's farewell, as it, as it is called, is really a sermon. It's a, it's a, it's a speech to the people, um, recalling really the, the grievous sin that, um, that they committed, if you want, by asking for a king. But that is only the latest in a, in a series of such-like things, times when they've strayed from the Lord. And there are three parties engaged here in this. There is Samuel, the Lord's representative. There is the Lord himself, and there is the covenant community of Israel, those that the Lord called to himself. Now, history it may be, but I hope that there are lessons for us here this evening in all that has taken place in this chapter and as we think about it together. Um, as we look at this interaction between God and the prophet and the people. And if one word um, could sum up the point of the passage, it might be that word faithfulness. Where is the faithfulness? Where is the faithfulness lacking? And what can we learn? Certainly to me, the concept of faithfulness is central to this whole passage and its lessons still speak to us today. The first is the faithfulness of Samuel. And that's very clear at the very beginning. In the first five verses of this chapter, we see the faithfulness of Samuel. Um, he is clearly under pressure at an earlier time and now making the point that he has listened to what the people have said. They, they came and they pressed him for a king and if you remember in the previous um, chapters that he wasn't pleased about that, he was disturbed by it, and he went and uh, took, took the request to the Lord, and the Lord said, no, it's not you they have rejected, it's me they have rejected. Um, he listened, he went to the Lord, and he was obedient to what God had said. Give them a king. Now, there has been no question of influence from individuals or a, a longing for personal gain uh, that shaped Samuel's actions. He remains the king's man, not Saul, but the king of kings. He remains his servant. Though he supports Saul in um, the early stages, at least, um, of his monarchy. And it... <laughs> In what follows, he establishes his right to speak. And at the same time, he removes any excuse from the people that his failure as a prophet and as a leader brought about this request for, the, for a king. His conduct while leading Israel has been the very antithesis 
of what they should expect for a king or from a king. And in fact, he had outlined that in the previous chapters. What a, what a king would do, he would, he would uh, take tribute from them, he would take taxes from them, he would take their young men to serve in his army. The king would, be, would abuse his position. All of that, Samuel foretold. And what, how Samuel has led Israel has been the exact opposite of that. So it's recorded in chapter 8 what those abuses and excesses of the king would be. And kings who followed him, followed Saul, will be no different in the long run. They wanted a king. They wanted to be like the other nations. And that's what they got. They got a king and they became like the kings of other nations. And I think that, you know, we need to be careful when we ask God for something that marks our distrust in the Lord that he may give us what we want. Now, the point is that no one can point to any abuse of Samuel's position nor any corruption on Samuel's part. And that is accepted by the people. It is accepted clearly and it is accepted wholeheartedly. This is not only a lesson for the incoming leader, the incoming king Saul, the Lord's anointed one who is present at this, but it is a rebuke to the, uh, also a, a rebuke of some sorts to Samuel's own sons who have not walked in their father's way, despite seeing his example. Having grown up with it and lived, seeing their father live in a contrary way, they have gone off and done the opposite. They have abused their position. But the, the request of, for the king here is central. And that is the offense against God. It has come off their own bat, and it will be on their own heads. They cannot point the finger at Samuel and say that he was the reason for their rejection of God. Neither the nation nor his sons. Samuel's integrity was clearly acknowledged by the people. But here's the thing, and in a way, I hope it's a help, um, though it's not a major point, I suppose. Though we may beat ourselves up about our inadequacies or our shortcomings in our responsibilities for a church or an organization or even our children, sometimes more is involved than simply the faithful witness on our parts. That's what's required of us but more is involved in it. There is personal responsibilities of the individuals involved, and that must also be recognized. As Israel here was held accountable, personally responsible for how they behaved, so it is the case today. But Samuel had set a good example. That was his example. Now, we can't expect world leaders or secular governments to act in accordance with the commands of God, to follow the blueprints um, for faithful living that he gives us. But we can and should expect and strive ourselves to live faithfully, to honor God in what we do and how we live and how we deal with other people. And the example that we set. I think it was um, John Stott, um, the late John Stott, who first talked about double listening. I'm sure you've heard that before, that Christians and especially Christian leaders should engage in double listening 
listening to the world and listening to God. Um, with the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other hand so that they can apply one, the Bible, to the other, the world. And in the end, that is what we find here, the ultimate evidence of Samuel's faithfulness, his supreme example as, of a, as a leader. In his living and in his proclaiming, he has listened to the people. He cannot agree with their request, but having taken the problem to God, he will go on now to proclaim God's word to them and bring a new charge to them, a charge that going beyond this, that they will be faithful. They have got their way on this occasion, but they are not off the hook if that's not a clumsy way of putting it. For leaders especially, and for believers generally, it's not enough to publicly live a faithful life. Very often, it has to be accompanied by the proclamation publicly of God's truth, whatever form that takes which also represents faithfulness. So we live faithfully, but we also proclaim God's word faithfully. We speak faithfully in his name. So that was Samuel's example, an example that the people could not repudiate or refute in any sense. He was faithful to his calling. But what about the people? Well, I think we sense it already. We know it already. We've read the what, what Samuel said and the judgment against the people in that sense. This is the covenant community. These are the people that God called as his own. The people addressed by Samuel, those who have seen his example, who will very soon hear the charge that he, that he will bring to them, um, God's message presented to them, are of course the people who at this stage represent the covenant community. The people that God has called. They are the people who have witnessed the mighty acts of God. The people who have had that special place in his purpose. They have a privileged position before God in relation to the other nations. And if we are talking about Samuel's life, removing any excuse for their request, the mighty acts of God on their behalf absolutely explodes any excuse that they might have had. They have seen the example of Samuel. They have seen the mighty works of God. And when you go back to chapter 8, when the elders of Israel come to Samuel with this demand or request, if you want, for a king, however long the gap between that and the events of chapter 7, the victory over the Philistines at Mizpah, it was not beyond living memory. It was not beyond the stretch of living memory. Yet there is a general forgetfulness about what God has done for them about God's deliverance for the, on the part of Israel, which Samuel addresses now in chapter 12, as he says, farewell. Though I'm not sure that um, that's maybe the best description. It's really a charge to the people as he leaves them. Theirs is that repeated pattern of coming close and falling away. The contrast of their unfaithfulness with God's love, which is glaring in Samuel's charge, is clear here. 
And I think it, it, it is completely fair to say that the request for a king, like those of the nations, represents desperation in a sense. And maybe more than that, actually. It represents a deliberate turning away. They have seen the threat. They have seen what happens in other nations. They have looked at their kings and they deliberately turn away despite all that God has done in their past. Now that, after all, is how God sees it. This deliberate turning away. And we go back to chapter 8 and verses 7 and 8 in chapter 8. There is no pulling the wool over God's eyes here. No measure that the people can fool the Lord or represent themselves as anything other than they are. Samuel may be old and his sons may be wasters. But that is neither, the re- is neither reason enough, neither of those are reason enough, nor are they the excuse for this request that is made. It is at least a failure of faith, and at worst, it might be as God, well, clearly is as God recorded as he spoke to Samuel. Um, they rejected God, not the prophet. Now, this is a striking out for freedom, in a sense, from God, a rebellion masquerading as a reasoned request. They come and they make this request. If we could only have a king like other nations, but it is a rebellion against God. It is a resort to human wisdom in the guise of a king. Other other nations are doing well, and they have kings, therefore we need a king to do well as well. He'll know better how to lead us. How can you know better than the Lord how to lead his own people? Now, we need to remember that this is the request of the covenant community, of the people God has chosen. Now, the thing for us is that we may want to dissociate ourselves today um, from the covenant community at that time. But actually, there is a warning here for us that is real and is relevant to the church today as the covenant community. We are never more than one generation away from total collapse and unfaithfulness. And if we are to listen to the world, if we are to give a higher respect to the world than we do to God, if we listen to the world and not the Lord, if we are to reason according to nature and not according to the word, then we will, like Israel, stray into faithlessness. And when we go back to John Stott, you remember what he said about double listening to the world and to God. But it was never to give weight, same weight, this equal weight to both parties there in that sense. Or what was coming back from the world in terms of the world's wisdom was equal to the wisdom of God. It was to apply the word to the world, the Bible to the nations as represented by what was happening in the newspapers. It was to understand the world so as to thoughtfully apply the wisdom of God to the issues of the world, whatever our day and whatever our age. And our first call has then to be obedience. And we need to hold that personally and as individuals and then also as a covenant community. As the world presses in, as the world makes demands for change, and as those demands for change become more strident, 
we need to remember that the wisdom of God is much greater than anything we can learn from the world. But it will get harder to walk in that way. And we need to bear that in mind. We need to remember that. It will help us to do so. You know, we often hear the argument put in terms of being on the wrong side of history. The church is on the wrong side of history in this, in this particular event or occasion or issue. But whose history? Whose history are we on the wrong side of at times? Who, who is the Lord of the ages? Who is God before time? To whom will every knee bow and every tongue confess? And if we hearken to those voices representing the spirit of the age and fail to heed the word of God, if we turn our backs, then it's only a question of time until the church, the covenant people, end up in the same failure as Israel and the same apostasy as the covenant people of old. When we resort to the kind of human-centric conventional wisdom that shapes the world of our day. Now, all of that said, there is, of course, a personal application in this as well. It's not just applying to the church. It applies to us all. There's a personal application in this as well. If we know Jesus and claim to know him as Savior, then that relationship must grow stronger. And our relationship with the world grew weaker. There may be many reasoned and well-presented arguments put up for social change, the kind of social change that we see all around us. Yet if we are living in a way contrary to the word of God, and if those arguments are contrary to the word of God, then we know who we must obey. There's no question about that at all. What is lacking, you see, on our part quite often, is not understanding. It is not clarity of the issues, but courage and sometimes faith. It is patience and godly wisdom to apply the word. That's sometimes what's lacking. And just in case there is any doubt, we need to remember that we are actually in a better position today than Israel of old. Why is that? Why is that the case? Because we stand on the other side of the cross. We have seen the ultimate expression of God's love in Jesus Christ. We have known and we have experienced the power of resurrection. And we have a clearer picture of the hope that we are called to. We're in a much better and clearer position than the people that we read about in this chapter 12 were in. But best of all, the truth that brings the greatest encouragement, if you are a Christian tonight, you have died and you have been raised with Christ. You have been joined to Jesus in his life. His spirit lives within you. We do not have to depend on our own wisdom. We do not have to live the Christian life in our own power as we work through the big issues of society today. Though sometimes that is what we choose to do. We choose to approach things in our own wisdom and then we get it wrong. And when we do that, we put ourselves right back in the place of seeking another king, like the king of the nations. To ask, in a sense, give 
us another rule of life that will make life less confrontational for us. So what is God's view of these events? How does God look at that? Well, the writer of 1 Samuel has described it here. Um, How does God respond? Well, one writer has said it is to recalibrate the covenant. It is to recalibrate. It, It wasn't to scrap the covenant. It wasn't to disown his people. It wasn't to tear up the old covenant that he had made with them and write another. It was to apply the covenant that he had made to this new situation. That was God's purpose. God's plan was always to provide a king. Humanly speaking, this maybe had happened at a time, an earlier time. But we can't say with certainty, as far as God is concerned, it didn't come out of the blue. It didn't catch him by surprise so that his response is knee-jerk? Not at all. And when Samuel confronts the community again with their sin and the gravity of the request that they made for a human king, that is backed home by a thunderstorm, by a kind of a, a natural event, but occurs supernaturally because this is the, the wheat harvest. This is the dry season. A thunderstorm should not have happened. Uh, and this thunderstorm that Samuel called for must have been of the same magnitude as the one that struck fear into the heart of the Philistines and set in train the rout of the Philistines in chapter 8, the battle at Mizpah. Now the word records that they stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. And awe must include a sense of terror, I think, in this particular case, leading to the request of verse 19. And if you look out there, you'll see at verse 19 there, you see what they ask for. What is Samuel's request or response to that request? It is to assure. It is to reaffirm. It is to reiterate the relationship that God intended. In short, if you want, it is to point to God who is faithful. And you will see um, that recorded in uh, verses 20 to 22, um, just towards the end of the chapter. Do not turn away from the Lord. Serve the Lord. Do not turn to idols. And most significantly in verse 22, for the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. Now this brings in the great theme of election. For what reason did God choose Israel? They weren't stronger than other nations. They weren't greater. They didn't have a greater culture. They were weak. They were insignificant. Even in the world of their day, that was true of Israel. So it was for some other reason. And it was for no other reason that it was his will to call them. And the same is true for us individually. If you turn um, to Ephesians chapter 2 and uh, read in verse 4, you read this. Um, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Because of his great love. Other versions put it differently, and I think add to it, because of the great love with which he loved us. So it points to the nature of God. God is love because of his great love. 
then it's applied to us with which he loved us. God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's not apart from Christ, it's together with him. Or as the Getty song emphasizes in the, the kind of the poetry of a song, the grace of God has reached for me and put me from this raging sea and I am safe on this solid ground. Why, the Lord is my salvation. See, God has committed himself to covenant relationship. God has committed himself to covenant relationship with those he has called. He has committed, committed himself to the people that he has chosen by his own will. And he does it not because we are worthy, not because there's something attractive in us that appeals to him in some way, but for the sake of his own great name. It is to his glory. It is because of his love. He cannot deny his promise. He cannot act contrary to his character. And if you want, that is stated in the glorious, if you want to read it, actually, it's, it's stated in glorious technicolor. Read it when you go home, Ephesians 1, 3 to 10. And you will see what that means in a kind of a New Testament context. Yet there is a way for his people to live. He has called us, he has chosen us out of his mercy, by his grace. But there is a way for us to live. There is a demand put on these people to faithfulness, but that comes to us as well. Now, we don't have to guess what that might be. It's stated very clearly in verse 24. What is it? Be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you very clear be sure to fear the Lord and serve him now summing up the whole thing the Bible teacher Dale Ralph Davis wrote this the dual emphasis in verses 16 to 25 are these you must see your great evil and you must see Yahweh's great steadfastness he is faithful to his covenant John Newton uh, the hymn writer pastor um, as his earthly life drew to a close put it very simply and he said this although my memory is fading I remember two things very clearly I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour you see it's not it, it is only by grace it is only by grace it is by grace alone through faith alone that we become the children of God or his covenant people. It is also by grace alone that we remain his people. You know the song? In fact, it was sung the last Sunday that I was here as the closing song for the service. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. And that's the power. That's where the power comes from. It comes from Jesus. It's not in us. It comes to us through him. The ability, the power, the strength to walk in a way that is faithful. So we have a life to live now and a witness to maintain as the covenant people of God, as Christ's own people. And we have God's word to apply to every aspect of life. And that's 
how we ought to live. How are we to do that? No more in human wisdom um, or seeking to assimilate the wisdom of the age to the church, the covenant people of God, but to hold the holiness and the justice of God together with the grace and love of God that we see revealed in Jesus Christ and to hold out that hope to, a world, to the world, to a society and to individuals who are quite often lost and troubled and confused about almost everything at a personal level. I listened to a man who works with young people um, speak two Sundays ago and he talked, and you, some of you would know because you're much closer to their age, the age of teenagers today. He talked about the, the, the challenges that they face that people of my generation and older did not have to face. The things that confuse young people today. Well, here is wisdom to apply to that confusion. We can only live by faith. We can only act in obedience with grace. And it is the same grace that we have experienced, that we hold out to others so that they also may know our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. <clears throat> our God and our Father, we ask this evening that uh, you would help us to apply these truths to our lives. There is so much here in this chapter for us to consider and to follow. Lord, give us wisdom, give us insight, give us understanding of your word this evening and help us then to live in the light of your word. Father, we want to pray just as we come to a close because it's peculiar in a way that tonight as we meet here, there is trouble in Israel and Palestine and between those two peoples again. And we read here in First Samuel how that has been going on now for thousands of years. And what we see this evening is just the latest manifestation of it. Father, we ask that in this situation that you would be at work. We know that wars will cease whenever you return. But we pray, O oh God, for wisdom now on the part of the peoples involved in this, on the part of the nations and the governments involved. We pray, Heavenly Father, that the two nations and their governments will seek ways of peace and that they may be helped in that search by the governments of the world. Father, we want to pray for your work in this place and in this congregation, this church family. We ask, oh God, that you will continue to work in this place in the days to come, that your blessing may be upon the session and the leaders of organizations and all who serve in any way, that the work in this place and in this community may go from strength to strength, that many will be drawn in, that many will come to know our beautiful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray for the work in this part of the city, in this locality around us here, in this part of our presbytery. We ask, O oh God, that you would be pleased to raise up servants who will live and work in this area and among its people, 
who will, in that sense, incarnate Christ to the people they live with and work with and engage with day by day. And Lord, we recognize that's our responsibility too. Help us to do it, we pray, and to do it faithfully as your Holy Spirit works within. So extend your kingdom and grow your church. For we ask this and all our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.